Welcome to Podship Earth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. The indigenous Aboriginal communities of California have gone through Spanish, Mexican, and then American colonizations and genocides. The goal of each wave of destruction was to eliminate tribal histories, identities, language, spirituality, and knowledge. These barbaric acts weren't just part of ancient history. From the 1950s to 1970, U.S. Congress passed termination laws to take away the obligations of the federal government owed to tribal nations. Yet in spite of this coordinated effort at erasure, the wisdom and traditional ecological knowledge of indigenous Californians lives on. Today we talk with Matthew Tutimez, who is the son of John Tutimez Jr., elder of the Keech Gabrieleno Band of Mission Indians, which is recognized by the state of California as the aboriginal tribe of the Los Angeles Basin. Matthew Tutimez has served as tribal biologist since 2010. Mr. Tutimez has been designated by his tribe to possess and share Keech Gabrielno culture, knowledge, and practices taught to him by Chief Ernie Tutimez Salas, along with multiple family elders of the Keech Gabrielno tribe. Mr. Tutimez received both his Bachelor of Science degree and his Master's degree in biology from California State University, Long Beach, and is the tribal specialist in ethno-botanical and cultural uses of native plants and animals, including the prehistoric distributions of natural resources throughout the ancestral territory of the Keech Gabrieleno tribe. Mr. Tutimez is a council member on the California Environmental Protection Agency's Tribal Advisory Council. I start by asking Matt to share his story. I mean, the only story that we know is our own story. Our generation of our tribe, we are continuing on the legacy of our past elders. Uh, mainly for, for me was my uncle, who is currently our chief and spiritual leader, Ernie Salas Tutimez. Uh, he has taught our generation pretty much all the uh, components of oral history, of traditional ecological knowledge, I mean, himself as well as other elders. But we didn't realize this growing up, but they were taking their time bringing us the locations and just giving us the family history. But incorporated into this is a, a bunch of knowledge that our generation is realizing is of importance for protection of these tribal resources, protecting the tribal human burials, as well as any resources associated with the culture that existed on this landscape for thousands of years. What's the history of the Keech Gabrieleno people in what is now California, Matt? So our tribal lineage actually encompasses all of the historical occupations of Southern California. So first, when the Spanish came in, my uncle, he holds the name, it's Ernest P. Salas Daltimez. The P stands for Perez or, or Perez. That is indicating of when the Spanish first came in, they took on land grants. Now, they had mistresses 
with Indian ladies. And those Indian women were our family. So that's how our family then became part of this prominent Spanish family. And then through those decades after when the California period was was in place and the Mexican government came in, the original families from that are considered today Los Pobladores, the original 12 families that came into L.A. and named L.A. Los Angeles, those families, our bloodline comes from those too because one of the daughters from that family married into the Nieto's family and thus became part of our bloodline again. So our bloodline continues on. When the Americans came here, our family were their servants. I mean, this is the story of our tribe in terms of how we survived through all these decades of persecution, because during all those decades, they were trying to get rid of the native population. This was, you know, the first use of slavery by the Spanish on this this landscape. And so that's how our families were taken away. We all were rancheros. You know, we were ranch hands. We were the nannies, the coach drivers. Those were our purposes through these generations when a lot of other natives were being killed and uh, murdered during these periods where you had uh, outfits like the Roland Posse. You had outfits like the Temple Posse, all these different posses that were hired by the government as militias to come out and remove the natives in these landscapes so that others can now settle there and utilize these lands for their own um, home sites. And so this was during that time where our tribe was able to be protected because we were the servants, we were the slaves to prominent families. The land base that our lineage derives from was a very resource-rich land base. Our location was not identified as having tribal occupation because they did not want to have to provide um, any sort of compensation for the tribes here. We were easily killed rather than dealt with. So Matt, when the system of of creating reservations was put in place and tribes' historic territories were constrained and treaties were done with the federal government, which in and of itself is a uh, a hideous history. This was basically saying, we want all the rest of this land, we're going to put you on this reservation. But your tribe, because the lands were traditionally in Los Angeles, people were like, it's easy. It's easier to kill you than it is to give you status. So, what does it mean, Matt, to you personally, and and to your family and community that you don't even have federal recognition? So, for for our personal beliefs, we know who we are. We know our lineage. We know our bloodline, and we know our responsibilities in terms of stewarding these resources that are part of our DNA. Um, because the plants, the animals, because our tribe's lineage derives from this actual land, all the DNA from our actual human component of our tribe is processed within the DNA of our native plants and animals. So our generation, one of the purposes all our cousins got together and, and are trying to put forth this effort is to realize that what our elders were trying to realize in the past is saying, hey, we're here we have information, we have knowledge, we have everything that is required. We just need acknowledgement so that we can protect our resources and we can help our surrounding community. So you personally, your your story though, Matt, is that 
you became a biologist. Tell, tell us about that journey and how it intersects with your tribal identity and, and responsibilities. So that's one of the aspects that not many of us in our tribe have had the opportunity to pursue graduate education, let alone just regular, you know, getting your bachelor's. I was able to pursue my bachelor's and then I met some professors that helped me pursue my master's. I was given scholarships. I was given help, not by um, any government agencies, but by friends, by folks who I worked for. I thought that the science that I was learning was actually going to contradict our traditional information. And here's here's the, the benefit that I've been given is I got to go to school to learn the science aspects of how science looks at biological species and diversity and all the different components. And then I get to come back home and I spend time with my uncle and he gives me the traditional perspective, which I thought was going to counteract. So given that, Matt, what, what happened? How do these things come together? In actuality, it blends so beautifully. And, and in reality, uh, the traditional information is so much more robust than the scientific information that is now starting to be developed. In my career, I've been put in positions of management and things of that sort where I've had to make decisions on behalf of biological resources. And my decisions were different than the standard decisions going out there because the standard decisions always had in relation to them the money aspect of money comes first. The way our elders teach us is that our dependence should be on the gifts we were provided here, what we consider gifts of our creator, which are the natural resources. Those, those are the things like the mineral resources we receive, oil. Oil is something, asphaltum, that's something that a lot of folks don't realize was such an important resource, not only for our tribe in Southern California, but also for our uh, sister tribe, the Chumash, because only our two tribes, we were the only ones that had oil within our traditional territories. What that led to is that only our two tribes were seafaring tribes, were tribes that could actually go in the open ocean because the oil allowed for the planking of the boats, for the, the water sealant that was necessary to go ocean faring. So the resource is what provided for that. And that's why it sustained populations here, not just that one resource, but it sustained populations. My cousin, when he got hurt playing football out in, in the, the street, um, he messed up his elbow. He came inside and his grandma took car oil and she took that car oil and put it all over him. And within, he said, probably about 10, 15 minutes, it started feeling better. And it started reducing the inflammation and all this stuff. He thought it was just old oil. Like, how does grandma know? And all during the time, you know, she's doing her prayer. And in science, it's now showing us what was going on. If you check out asphaltum, check out natural crude oil, you're going to find one of the main components is fulvic acid, F-U-L-V-I-C. Fulvic acid is a compound that actually works intracellularly to bind an organic compound with an organic compound. So you have an inorganic with an organic. When do we know this occurs as well? A lot of times, like when I get a head cold or I get a cold, I'll take zinc. Uh, zinc is a metal. It's a positive ion, inorganic. This metal, when 
bridged with an organic compound helps our immunity, helps to bridge that energy for our immunity. That's exactly what fulvic acid is doing for us. So when you apply this oil, you are applying fulvic acid to provide all these cellular therapies at that level. No other tribe knows that because they don't have oil other than the Chumash. So these are why these distinctions of why tribes, particular to a landscape, understand their landscape. Because over thousands of years, those are the gifts that we have all been using. So Matt, as a member of an indigenous community with that history in 2020, like how do you view, how, how can we bring people back to that place where they're understanding and aligning with their landscape? So from our perspective, one of the main components of why folks in this generation don't have a full understanding is because they don't have an engagement. They don't have interaction with uh, any sort of natural resource. The main interaction is going on a trail, looking from the trail into an off distant location. And maybe sometimes that location is fenced or is, you know, it's somehow disassociated with humans. And that reality has never been the, the main purpose here on this landscape. Humans have always had to interact, and, and in actuality, our plants, our native flora and fauna, they will be healthier um, when we interact with them. There's many studies that have shown that like our plants, like if you don't trim them, you don't interact with them, they end up growing scraggly and not growing in a way that is beneficial to the plant or the visiting birds. As you're talking, one of the things that, that kind of came to mind was that we used to relate to nature through farming and through food, and, and that's kind of been lost. The reality here is that the tribes that lived in Southern California, and I would say most of California, they did not have to farm. They did not have to provide their own sustenance. Here's where the main concept changed that we would love if folks would have this different concept on our provisions, on who are we relying upon because for thousands of years on this landscape the the folks here relied upon the creator to provide the food the medicine the shelter today we are reliant upon man to provide our food our medicine our shelter and that reliance what we feel is resulting in not a fulfillment of those components where humans have lived on this landscape for thousands of years and have always lived a robust life and have always been plenty with food, with uh, shelter, with medicine. I mean, where I live right now, I'm close to where Huntington Beach, Seal Beach, in those locations, they were known for oysters. They were known for all these just beautiful shellfish, abalone, you could go down to that ocean and at the ready, be able to have a meal that is just so luxurious. When I was in Alaska, I got that same sense of, of abundance that the nature really could provide for all our needs. But now in the lower 48, it feels like we come to nature with a real scarcity mindset. For instance, you know, we, we only protect those species of plants and animals if they get on a threatened list or I don't know, the, the whole thing seems a little upside down. When we do projects as a consulting biologist, the only uh, species that will afford any sort of protection is only if they're on a list. It doesn't 
show the value of that species, such as right now, Yerba Santa. Yerba Santa is a standard plant that right now is being destroyed in many um, urbanized developments going on in the hillsides of our foothills right here in Southern California. These locations are removing this plant very readily. However, this plant was given the name Yerba Santa by the Spanish because it was considered the holy herb. Because when they came here to this land, they were also bringing with them many diseases. Um, tuberculosis, all the smallpox. We have a, a softer version called Aerodictyon crassifolium. These plants, up until the 1960s from the Spanish time, they actually created, uh, Yerba Santa was one of three plants that was in their pharmacology as their main go-to plant whenever they had any ailments. This was the Spanish. Um, then you have the Americans utilizing it all the way up into the 60s in our, you know, traditional medicine, or I mean, in our Western medicines. And then for some reason today, this plant just gets destroyed as part of progress for housing. So why isn't that plant have any value? Because today with all this craziness going on all over the world, we need some antiviral components. We need some antibacterial, you know, helpers. And this plant is it. And no one's doing any sort of research on it. This is the same with Sambucus. Sambucus is actually being found in a lot of areas because uh, Sambucus, that's elderberry. All of these European countries who have elderberry, they're investigating it with their science. But in America, we're not. And that's the component that, especially right now with all of our native plants that have these compounds known as monoterpenoids, sesquiterpenes, flavonoids, these are all scientific words relating to compounds that we traditionally were using as therapeutic medicines. And we still do. And here's the clincher. Here's the main factor that science is now discovering. And a lot of the science coming up in the cannabis uh, research they're showing that we as humans have receptor systems already set up for these compounds. So for a monoterpenoid like camphor, like menthol, these are compounds found readily within our native plants that our bodies already recognize. And same with cannabis within the um, uh, cannabinoid receptor system. That's the beauty of why we believe the gifts of our creator, because how my uncle teaches us is that the plants and animals were also given the breath of life. What does that show us? That similarity with us shows that we are meant to interact with them. We are also a creation along with them. And then here's another component that we believe, um, according to our origin stories, the plants and animals were actually put on this earth prior to humans. And so that component makes it so that the plants and animals are actually older than us. They're actually our elders, and they're meant to teach us. We're meant to learn from them. They have lessons hidden for us under every leaf and every rock. Like these components of learning from our plants, of utilizing our plants, that doesn't happen in our generation today. Nobody is doing it. However, you see in all of our stories, why are there always animals involved in our stories? Why are there always plants and trees involved in our stories? Because those are our teachers, and they're still trying to teach us today. Let me give you one quick story of Willow. Willow being a huge factor in our huts, our homes, what our tribe is named after, Keech. Uh, Keech is the name of the home, and that's the strength still in our own families. 
And that capacity of bending and not breaking allowed to make a geometric structure, a dome that is the strongest geometric structure you can create. It also provided us medicine. The active ingredient within willow is uh, salicin. That's the main compound. Well, salicin actually in its original form is not recognizable by our body. Salicin um, would, if we were to take it, it would just flush through our body as waste. However, there is a little critter that lives inside of our body that recognizes salicin. And this is a whole separate genome that's actually living inside of us. And these things we call today probiotics. I love the fact that we have all these microbes living inside us, helping us. Um, so what are in fact probiotics? These are either yeast or bacteria that are in our gut and they're not part of us, they're, they're a friend. And they will take salicin and they will repackage it into soliginin. Soliginin now is understandable by our body. It can be recognized. So then our body takes that, puts it in our liver and metabolizes it into salicylic acid. If you look at the active ingredient in wart remover, in aspirin, it's salicylic acid. Aspirin is acetylsalicylic acid, but that's just because the uh, reverse compound is easier on the stomach. But this component, what we're learning from this is that in order for us to get that benefit from that salicylic acid, you had to have a relationship with a little critter in there. Those critters weren't there. You would never get that benefit. And that's what this plant is teaching us. Without working together, we don't get any benefits. This cycle, the way things were designed and, and were created is we need to work together. That's how benefits are created. If you're doing it separate, it's a lot harder and usually you don't get the benefit. But when we work together, such as how the probiotic has to help us in recognizing that compound, the tree wants to help us, but our body didn't recognize. So we needed that helper of the probiotic to recognize it. And then in turn, we provide nutrients for that probiotic to survive. So these cycles that are just natural cycles within all of you know our ecology and, and, and just our biological world, um, these are known lessons to, to teach us, hey, humans, when you guys are interacting with each other, guess what? In the natural world, we need to work together. Guess what you guys need to do? How about working together? And those are the, the big lessons that we are just ignoring because we don't have any interaction with our native flora and fauna in our generation. Tell me, Matt, more about the breath of life. Talk about that origin story and how the breath of life is infused in everything. Our spiritual understanding in terms of why we honor and we feel things are sacred. The idea of sacredness for us is that this is an item that was not created by us, was not provided by us. It was something given to us as a gift. And we are supposed to take care of it. Just like if you're loaned a bike from your next door neighbor, you're not going to trash that bike and then give it back to you know him. You're going to try and take care of that item as, as good as possible. And that's how we feel with these items that were provided for us, all the natural resources. And not even that, that their purpose is just to help us. Oh, no. They're to be honored just like our elders because – and here's the reality – in our spiritual understanding, we have to rely on them in order for 
our ability to connect to each other at the end of our existence on this earth. We believe in another spiritual realm. And after this existence here, we're going on to another existence in a spiritual realm. And that's where all our predecessors have gone. In our origin story, we don't know the location of that place. We have been disconnected from that place. There's a separation of us and the creator. We don't know where the creator went, um, but we do have our understandings. Like for us in particular on the West Coast, um, we are so fortunate to be able to see where the sun sets every day. And that was a significant event that occurred back in the day because the understanding was that the sun represented our creator and that was the eye of our creator. And where the sun went is also where our soul goes when we pass on. His creation, his other breath of life is connected. So it was essential to have that other breath, to have that breath that wasn't disconnected from our creator, to have that breath that knows where the creator is in order to fulfill this cycle of us being joining each other in this afterlife. The breath of life wasn't provided just so that they can serve us during this life. Oh, no. They are meant to teach us, to help us live this life in a robust way and then reconnect us in the afterlife. I mean, they have a huge job to do down here and we are giving them no respect, no honor for what they're providing for our not only existence here on this earth, but in our afterlife as well. Our chief and our spiritual elders just ingrain in us that these things they too, we're equal. We are not above them. We're, we're equal or they are better in terms of they have a connectivity with our creator that we don't have, that we are reliant upon them to reconnect us. So given that that reconnection is so important, how would you suggest that each of us can, can better reconnect with, with creation? From our perspective is to start a native garden in your own home. And our plants are able to be grown in like small areas. Um, I actually have one of our main medicine plants growing in our back alley outside of our office in Covina, California. You just have to provide them with what they want. We have such a, uh, I mean, California, we are so lucky in having such a huge diversity. I would say try and learn the natives to your specific landscape. And that understanding will help you understanding the potential of how it's supposed to function. The disconnect that happens with folks is that they learn about something in a book. And then they'll maybe go out and do some bird watching, but they're never actually like trying to help this one plant live. And that's what I mean by starting gardens. When you have a garden, you pretty much have a baby that you have to take care of and you have to learn what it needs. Choosing a few native um, plants, such as many of our sages, and these are simple treatments that um, can help you get value from it. Because here's here's where um, one of the values came from me. Um, I make my own medicines now. Our tribe has always done that. And I actually use you know modern science in the distillation and things of that sort to produce, you know, these essential oils. Well, I produced some that I was given to my grandmother. And this was a, a special plant that um, I was able to get up in Mammoth. And this is what this is cottonwood. 
pretty much. I, we have cottonwood down here, but up in Mammoth, I was able to possess some because it had new growth. You had to get it during when the new buds came out because when the new buds came out, it produced a film on the new buds, and that film was super, super anti-inflammatory as well as anti, like a preservative. It was antimicrobial. Um, so anyway, I was able to make a special medicine for that, and I gave it to my grandma. And that night, she's all, Matt, you know, I had never slept so nice because my back wasn't hurting, you know, because that the in, inflammation, whatever. So because of that experience of that helping my grandma, I now am looking for cottonwood all the time to be able to incorporate because I have now a different value for it that, whoa, this helped my grandma in this situation. So that sort of uh, program we, we have going with our youth and we make medicines for our elders. So anyway, that's what I'm kind of getting at in terms of folks having their own plants in their front yard or just, you know, one, two, three different types of plants and taking care of it, putting your efforts towards another breath of life, you know, that has value, that has purpose for us. And that experience, just like when you try and, you know, a lot of us had to do our own gardens this year because of the uncertainty of, you know, what food was going to be. Um, and so that experience of producing your own food, of growing your own plants really gives you a value system to those plants. And that's where we're at. Like try and interact, try and, you know, get these experiences. And so you're, you're saying we can, we can basically just start small, start with a few small steps. Even if you do it in a window box outside your apartment, you know, our plants still can. Our, our Estefialte, which is a mugwort, it's Artemisia douglasiana. This thing, it, it, it's just, it's a beautiful plant that provides so much aromatic result. Like it's just a cleanser. It cleanses your whole respiratory. If you have like a stuffed up nose, we use that all the time. For instance, white sage, which is one that everyone knows about. Uh, the scientific community is now actually showing that the smoke has been found to kill molds or fungus a lot more effectively than even our commercial cleansers that are in our markets. And so, you know, that component in itself can help folks who, you know, um, don't want to put chemicals into their home, utilize another method that does the same effect in terms of removing microbes from the walls and things of that sort. And this is all being found by science. So why not grow something in your front yard that you can utilize? And growing that plant can, can really begin a journey of a lifetime. Matt, would, would you do us the honor of ending this podcast with a prayer? Here's a prayer that my uncle provides for us. He's our chief and spiritual leader. And here's a prayer from him that he provides to us that I would like to read. Oh, great spirit, whose voice I hear in the winds and whose breath gives life to all the world. Hear me, I come before you, one of your children. I am small and weak. I need your strength and wisdom, Father. Let me walk in beauty and make my eyes ever behold the red and purple sunset. Make my hands respect the things you have made. My ears sharp to hear your voice. Make me wise, Father, so that I may know the things you have taught my people, the lessons you have hidden in every leaf and rock. I seek strength not to be superior to my brothers, but to be able to fight 
my greatest enemy, myself. Make me ever ready, Father, to come to you with clean hands and straight eyes. So when life fades as a fading sunset, my spirit may come to you without shame. Aho. That was beautiful. Thank you, Matt. A huge thank you to Matthew Tutimez for sharing his story and wisdom with us today. The way Matthew invoked connection to all things in the universe made me yearn for reestablishing that relationship with nature myself. Our spiritual connection to each other, to our past, to life herself, is at the core of our survival as a species. I want to thank the Keech Gabrielno and so many other tribal nations for keeping that sacredness alive. When so many sought to extinguish that breath, they fought to maintain their connection to the earth. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey. Please share Podship Earth with a friend. From the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spate, executive producer David Kahn, and from me, Jer Blumenfeld, maybe begin a new journey yourself by tending to a native plant today. <laughs>